Brexit means Brexit. An exit from Brexit. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Seamus and Notch is a great idea. Hello and welcome to Debated Podcast. So, as usual, I'm Conrad. I'm joined by Will, as usual, and today's Hello. guest is Nathan Broder, who is an activist with For Our Future's Sake, the um, People's Vote slash Second Referendum campaign group, and also an activist for Labour. Hi, Conrad. So, um, yeah, so obviously you've you've had you've got these two activisms sort of sure. coinciding, maybe clashing. Some could say. So, what? Mm. What are your thoughts on Labour's position towards a second referendum people's vote? Sure. I mean, whichever perspective you come from in the Labour Party, if you want you know, a left-wing exit, if you think that's that's possible, or you think that you don't want it, but you think that the referendum should be uh, respected on, on the terms of the government's deal or whatever terms, or like me, you want a final say on the deal, Labour's position is clearly too ambiguous at the moment. It's not clear enough. So my view is obviously we can't pivot to... A more Brexit position, not that we would want to, but equally that pitch is, or is already full with the Brexit party, with the Tory party. So we need to be a full on Remain party. Uh, we've seen the polls if um, Labour were to fully embrace the people's votes, to go up to 38%. Um, and obviously we'd, we'd kill the forces like the Liberal Democrats, Greens, and whatever's left of the, the rump of TIG. Um, so I think it's, it's a strategic thing for the Labour Party. I think it's our best way from getting back into government. It's our best way actually of solving the Brexit impasse when we do eventually at some point get into government. Um, and also it's the right thing to do. You know, the people deserve a final say on the terms of Brexit. Uh, and I think we should be making loud and, loud and clear the, the case for staying in the EU. Uh, speaking of the um, rump of TIG, as you mentioned, today yeah. has been quite a um, monumental day for Change UK, the independent, sure. whatever you want to call them. Uh, what do you think this says about um, parties that are splintering from other larger movements that Change UK has only been around for like as a registered party for 50 days and yet it's already splintering? What's your take from all this? Sure. I mean, it's life of Brian stuff, isn't it? People's front of Judea. Um, I, I mean, it's, it's an absolute shambles uh, from start to finish, really. I feel sorry, you know, I've got a lot of time for Luciana Berger and I feel sorry for her because she deserves a lot better than this. Um, but, I mean, it, it shows the issue of, of egos, you know, people like Chuck O'Reilly and Chris Leslie, Mike Gates, um, you know, these egos in politics who uh, are all, well, not that much style in, in Gates' case, uh, but no substance. And, you know, it's, it's a big issue that, that there is no substance behind these people. It's all about an ideology which is about triangulation and things that aren't necessary aren't, aren't necessary and aren't, aren't required in, in the current political climate and the fact that they've gone and attacked the Labour Party and it's it's failed says a lot about the robustness of of, of us as a, as a socialist force as a social democratic force uh, in British politics yeah because I mean the whole sort of change UK TIG saga I think it's been quite interesting because when it first sort of set up and it was it was sort of framed around sort of Corbyn's the problem, you know, the anti-Semitism problem in Labour, mm. all that stuff. And you've got also got, you know, his hard left economics. And that was, and also his views on Europe, but that was one of many things that they had problems with Labour with. Um, sure, yes. And, that, and they, did, they immediately did quite well in the polls. They had them on like 11%, 12%, which is like not bad for like a brand new party. But... I think I, I think the sort of 
the chain sort of came when they accepted Heidi Allen, Anna Subri and Sarah Wollaston. That seemed to be the moment for me when it mm. seemed to have less of a cohesive ideology of just being sort of an anti-Labour centre-left thing, just became this wishy-washy sort of centrist thing. Would you would you agree with with that diagnosis? Um, I think I definitely started. I think it, its main issue, look, is that the Liberal Democrats still exist. Um, I don't think they can really compete for the same voters. So that's an issue from the start. Uh, obviously, the changing of the name didn't help. It confused people, um, and they didn't really, you know, they really have a message. They couldn't cope with being a, a small, a new party in the same way that the Brexit party. And it's not a party I obviously I agree with, but they were successful. They were able to do that, uh, and take sort of took change UK to that for granted. Um, and yeah, I think that's the origins. I think certainly it lost a lot of credibility amongst sort of the centre left by allowing Anna Subri and somebody who. You know, generally supports that right economics and uh, is you know is certainly on the right of the country in a way that Sarah Wollaston and Hayley Allen were less so. Um, it lost a lot of credibility in that, but actually, it's sort of confused message and it's clashed with the Liberal Democrats for me. Uh, the sources of its um, collapse. And of course, Anna Subri is now their new leader. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you talked a moment ago about um, competing for uh, the same group of voters. I wondered, obviously you're campaigning for Labour to become a much stronger Remain party. Mm. If Labour did become a party that supported uh, a people's vote, you know, unequivocally, how do you think Labour would then be able to get voters who have perhaps moved on this issue to the Liberal Democrats back to Labour? I mean, what is the sort of like process that would be involved sure. there? It's a, it's a good question. I think... Look, it's about making the case that the only way for stopping a hard Brexit, a Tory Brexit, or one in any form is by voting for Labour. Uh, whether or not the Brexit party or, or the Tory party in whichever form will be the biggest threat to Labour in the next general election, there's only going to be one alternative, and that will be the Labour party. So Liberal Democrats, inserting, aside from inserting constituencies, and uh, aside from Brighton Fillion for the Green Party, voting for those is a wasted vote. Uh, in the system that we have, the only way to stop that, and the way to stop Brexit as it exists, uh, is to vote for Labour. And look, we need to make that case um, far more effectively, and hopefully in a general election, as we saw last time, um, doing that effectively, that we'll be able to do that. Um, I, I do think, if you look at the European Parliament elections, we see actually that four t- we lost four times more votes um, to Remain parties, uh, mostly the Greens and the Dems, than we did to the Brexit party. And most of our voters support Remain. I think 75% uh, of our 2017 electorate, electorate did. Um, and actually, the interesting thing between the May local elections of 2017 and the general election was actually the Tories, even despite Theresa May's shambles of an election campaign, didn't have a substantial drop in support. They had about a 3% drop uh, from those two elections. Actually, Labour's increase from of about 14% came exclusively, exclusively from the Liberal Democrats and Greens because people realised that actually the best way of stopping the Tories is by voting Labour, and, and that's that's quite clearly true. Um, so if you want Labour to sort of shift one way, the Tories have also got a, a leadership election coming up. Um, what do you think the likely outcome is, and what which and which person do you think would be the biggest threat to Labour? Um, I think the likely outcome at the moment is Boris Johnson will get elected. Uh, I think it's a four-horse race to get into the final two uh, between Hunt, Gove, Rob, and Johnson. Uh, if Hunt does get into the final two, I think any of them would beat him. 
So I think it's ultimately a three-horse race between Gove, Rob and Johnson. If Johnson's in the final two, I think he'll beat either of those three. Uh, and it, I think Rob would actually beat Gove um, if Johnson were to get the final two. But looking at his numbers amongst the MPs, I think uh, Johnson will get the final two and actually win by a significant margin against Gove uh, or Hunt. Uh, in terms of Labour, the person we want most is Michael Gove uh, because he's quite well known and so you don't have the factor of a new leader like with John Major in 92. Uh, and also when people do know him, they don't tend to like him, um, partic- particularly teachers. Um, second to that would be Boris Johnson because whilst he's very popular amongst Lee voters, he's incredibly unpopular amongst Remain voters. And that would be a massive get-out-of-the-vote tactic for Labour. And also, even amongst Labour, there's not much sense that he'll be a credible Prime Minister. Uh, and if he was to push no deal, that would precipitate a, a huge split in the Tory party or a decent enough one to result in a general election. Uh, I think, ironically, our biggest threat uh, to the party is Sajid Javid. Um, but at the moment, I don't think he has a realistic shot of getting into the final two. No, I, I certainly agree with your analysis of who's like to win and in terms of the final four as well. Um, mm. I think that the sort of Boris Johnson has shown abilities before to win over unlikely people that don't usually sort of vote Conservative or, or, or wouldn't consider that in, in London, the London mayoral elections and also in the EU referendum when he, he was sort of the face of the Leave campaign and you saw a lot of sort of Labour Leave kind of areas. Although you, you're right that most Labour voters did support Remain, there was the um, there was about a third of Labour voters that, 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 that went Leave, especially in Northern and Midlands areas. Um, so I personally think that he's the most electable out of out of out of the lot, but I, I do I do think Sajid Javid's got certainly got certain qualities. I do think it's unlikely he's going to be in the final final two or final four yeah. even probably. Um, and I do worry he has a, too much of a like a robotic personality, which we saw with Theresa May. And True. as much as we want elections just to be about policy, and I'm sure we all like would like that to sort of be the focus, there is an element of charisma and and personality that comes into it especially in debates but I don't know what will what do you think about the um the next leader of the talk? I mean I, I would agree with both of your uh, analysis uh, to an extent I think that Boris is probably most likely to win but the conservatives have a habit of killing off the favorite um to be leader so I, I don't I wouldn't entirely think it's certain that he would um become leader but I mean it's interesting to see sort of like the, the the divide from the major candidates and some of the sort of like the um, uh, perhaps the fringe candidates, the more uh, minor candidates. For instance, if you take someone like Rory Stewart, what do you think that um, is his appeal to voters? Because there's there's been some quite interesting stirrings on Twitter and in the media about the campaign that Rory Stewart has been running i mean would you say that at some point perhaps in the future he could be leader of the conservative party and perhaps a credible threat to labor or do you think that it's all just sort of like a a media bubble yeah i think there's there's a lot of truth to that being a media bubble that's what i was going to say in the fact that he's very popular amongst political elites and you know people have a soft spot for him and um, I, I see that. Uh, I think he, I like his videos. They're, they're very warm and friendly. Uh, his voting record less so. But um, I, I just can't see the Tory party electing someone who's as sort of 
um, centre aligned uh, as Rory Stewart, someone who voted in the indicative votes for a customs union. Uh, so I think even if he were to get into the final two in a future leadership election, which is still a, a big shot, is that he would uh, he would struggle with the Tory members. I think there's a, there's a theory going out there that he's sort of a Michael Gove's uh, secret weapon. He's going to attack all the other candidates and become Gove's foreign secretary, which might have an element of truth to it. What certainly is true is that he's endeared himself to, to lots of people in the political establishment and whoever becomes Tory leader, most likely that'd be Boris, that would be Boris Johnson. I think Boris Johnson will struggle not to give him some cabinet position. So ultimately, it's been quite successful. But of course, Rory Stewart has said that he wouldn't serve in Boris Johnson's cabinet. Oh yeah, that's so, true. That's, that's a good point. Um, which is which is a shame because I, 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 even as someone who's passionately for Brexit, who doesn't really agree on Rory Stewart's views on 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 Europe, and that is the kind of only issue that matters in the short term. Uh, maybe not in the long term, but I do True. like I do like Rory Stewart as a person, and I think I I I watched I saw a video on his sort of views on why he's a conservative, and I um and it's talking about sort of the sort of romantic traditions of this country that I, that resonated with a lot of people who aren't sort of the kind of people you'd expect to like a sort of more sort of remain candidate, but but actually sort of thought actually he's he's, he's articulating what a lot of people struggle to articulate in that why they're a conservative and and where it comes from, which is I guess the base root of if you're trying to win over new people. Yeah, I mean that's just true. Um, I I just in a way actually that I think you make an important point about leaders and their effects on on elections. I just think just in the way the economy's gone uh, and and the case of structures means that it's unlikely that any Tory is in my view, is likely to, to be in office for very long. Um, I think we're heading towards a government which is which is certainly led by Labour, just by the you know the, the calculations of the way the economy is going, uh, the way that people's wages are going, the way the public services are going. Um, and I actually think, regardless of who the Labour leader and who the Tory leader is, in at this stage of the electoral cycle, the Tories have been to the electorate three times, um, 2010, 15 and 17, has, uh, and been successful. I just think this is the point of time when people are holding them to account, uh, giving a lot more blame to them than credit, and there's no level of, of you know, energy, vibrancy, or being new. Uh, so I think whoever that Tory leader is, and as I said, it's unlikely to be Rory Stewart, they're going to struggle against those sort of structural factors. Yeah, I could see, I could see that point. I think that it's it's what like it's very difficult to renew an office and to sort of yeah. present a new face, and like. If, I mean, there might be an election in a few months, but yeah, if, yeah. if it is in um, 2022, as is currently scheduled, then we would have been office for 12 years, which is basically this, like one year less than New Labour. Mm, yeah. So <laughs> I, I think that, yeah, it is. Unlike, but then I guess the Corbyn factor, there is a lot of people who just cannot count on him being prime minister in any fashion. So I think like... As much, as, like I think, yeah, we're probably the underdogs, but I think that obviously, you know, politics is so mental. Look what's happened in the last few years. <laughs> anyone makes, sure. you know, not, you know, I, w- I wouldn't want to make so like like a definite prediction that, but that we might lose. But yeah, it, it it will be difficult. But I think I'd rather have someone with the best shot, even if they're still the underdog. And I think that's Boris. But but do you, do you not think he's alienated too many Remain bases? Um, I think he only let it remain, but it's, I honestly think that those voters aren't coming back for like a, a generation anyway. So we're better off focusing on the 
as as you as you were saying that with with Labour alienating mm. like Leave voters is isn't so much of a big deal because you want to focus on all the m- much more voters that you've lost to the Lib Dems. I see it in the reverse of the Tories in that we we have lost a few to Lib Dems, but we've lost way more to the Brexit Party, and that is where I'd rather get people back from. Mm. I mean, my view is is essentially that. I don't think Boris Johnson will deliver a negotiated form of Brexit because that goes against his goes against the contradictory nature, in my view, of the referendum mandate. But equally, if he tries to go for no deal, then Parliament will stop that because it only needs. I mean, there's this Institute for Government report people are quoting, but what it sort of doesn't give enough credence to is the fact that Parliament, if there's going to be any no deal legislation, which there inevitably would have to be on immigration and customs and trade, there'll be have to be about fifty bills. Uh, is Parliament will be able to stop any of them? Um, so that, I mean, that's the that's the dilemma for for Johnson is that either he goes for a negotiated form, and look, there isn't a negotiated form in my view that Boris would go for because uh, of the contradictory nature of the referendum mandate, or he goes for an ODL and Parliament stops him, uh, and we head towards a general election. But with regard to your point about Johnson could just go for Brexit voters, is it's very difficult to build a sustainable coalition just going for one side of the referendum debate. So my view is that Labour has to be Remain, because uh, it's the right thing to do. It's, it's the best electoral calculation. But also, again, something that again, is the best electoral calculation and the right thing to do is to be actively anti-austerity uh, and to be going into the communities that voted to leave and saying, look, most of you, lots of these communities, former mining communities, have been left behind with massive investment uh, in these areas. And stopping Brexit is just one uh, part of, of a radical plan to do so. So we need to attract leave voters with our economic agenda and actually shift the debate to the economy whilst also saying, look, the British people are going to have a final say. I think one of the most important things um, regarding Brexit and whether there is a negotiated outcome or not will be trade. Now, of course, over um, the past couple of days um, in Britain, we've had a, a certain visitor uh, who has been hosted by the Queen and the Prime Minister. I wonder what will your... What was your initial reaction um, to Trump's state visit? I mean, h- how did you feel about it? Did you think it was a positive thing or did you feel that it was something that um, besmirched um, the British people and perhaps uh, would harm the way that the Conservative Party is viewed by them? Mm. Uh I won't surprise you to say the latter, although I'm not sure people seeing the Conservative Party in negative terms is necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> uh, certainly not to me. But look, uh, as people keep rightly saying, and this is almost a soundbite amongst people who oppose a visit, it's a state visit is a privilege. Um, and very few presidents get it in their first terms, never mind, um, you know, in his, fir- in his second or third year as president. Um Look, people are often cite state visits of other foreign leaders with terrible human rights records, and I agree they shouldn't have been invited on a state visit. And I made that case, I remember, at the time in 2015 with, with Xi Jinping. Equally, uh, and this is not what about three by any means, they don't tend to be leaders of the free world, and Donald Trump does. Um, I have no problem with him, people sitting down with him and, and discussing the policy issues. Um, however, a state visit is an entirely different exception. I don't think don't think should have been offered to Donald Trump. Um, you might be surprised to find out I disagree. <laughs> um, so I think that 
you're right that obviously state visit is different from just president visiting um i think we've but i think we've seen a lot of sort of the same kind of outrage when he's visited in the past i think this is more about people not liking trump as a person which is perfectly understandable you know he's a controversial figure but (laughs) he he not only is he representing one of our biggest allies biggest trading partners biggest security partners um, and is sort of re- uh, we should have a respect for the office, if not the man who's currently sitting in there. But also, uh, um, he's come over for the 75th anniversary of D-Day, which is obviously um, a very like big event, and it's a, a time to sort of remember those sort of past links that we've had and and try and build stuff for the future. And I think a state visit is sort of is a good time to sort of coincide with that and and it's not necessarily as political as um as as as, an, as a meeting because it's, it's more about the sort of sort of royalty and all that kind of thing um but yeah no i think that um i think it's a good idea to have have, have trump come and it's sort of it's, it's theresa may's sort of last hurrah i guess um <laughs> as, as she makes her farewells but um no i think that of the, it will help build sort of relations in the future, which we need because America is our biggest ally. Yeah, I mean, look, America. I'm not going to, I'm not going to demean the special relationship. I, I do think it's our, our biggest ally. It was uh, interesting that a few of the past foreign secretaries came together in, in an article and asked, "What's the, what's the most important thing for British foreign policy?" And they said, "Our relationship with America." And look, I get that. Um, the issue with there is that I feel like we're giving too much to America and letting Trump have this state visit, which he clearly uses as, as an honour, and I'm sure rightly so. But we're not actually getting going to get anything back from it. Um, and the reason for that is particularly focused on trade, because the current deal, which is the only deal on the table, actually, there's only nego- one negotiated exit, and that includes a backstop, means we're not going to be able to have um, customs deals, uh, have free trade deals, sorry, with, uh, with third parties, and that would include America. Equally, if we were to leave with no deal, which is a way in which we would be able to negotiate free trade deals, although I think it would be odd to negotiate on WTO terms with our closest ally, but that's not the point, um, that would lead to a hard border and would mean that Congress, you know, with those deep Irish relations and a Democrat majority would reject that. So, look, it's, it's a very complicated scenario, but equally, I think the point that, that needs making even more is do we even want this trade deal with America? Like it would be far better to negotiate it with the EU, um, looking very, very different to what TTIP was, and I was, I was very opposed to TTIP. Um, one that actually maintains regulatory standards, because the whole thing about trade deals is they, if you're negotiating with a power which has lower uh, regulatory standards, then you inevitably go down to the lowest denominator, um, and that's just simple trade. But the issue is that with American healthcare, as we've seen today, but also with um, regulations on food and it seems the chlorinated chicken has become the symbol of that uh, is that their regulations are far lower and the way that they treat workers is is far worse so the reason we don't have free trade with the us on the on an eu level is precisely for that reason i don't think it is desirable i actually don't think that i think that whilst it's quite nice in theory i don't think any government would be able to sell it to the british people in practice because look no farmer's going to vote for a deal which is going to Open up, open UK markets up to to American uh, agri farmers, um, 
and I don't think the British people are going to want the reduction in standards that would inevitably come from it. Actually, and Conrad, you might disagree with me, I'm happy to, to debate this is, uh, given the name of the podcast, is, <laughs> um, is that I don't think Brexit was a vote for free trade outside hacks like us. I mean, obviously, I, I'm not a Brexit supporter, but we are people who are politically engaged. We understand uh, and are pre, you know, and understand the technicalities and follow it every day. Look, people on on stupid. That's not at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying is they don't go and watch you know Newsnight every night or um, listen to the Spectator podcast or New Statesman. So people don't. The mandate for leave was actually a vote against the effects of globalisation and free trade in mining communities in in places like you know Bolsover or more cl- close to home for me in, in Wigan, which are often cited. Actually, you know, they're not voting there because they want an increase in free trade. They want more protection for industry. They want, let's be honest, less immigration. Um, and that obviously comes naturally with, with free trade. So my, my view is, is trade is complicated and vitally important. We need to, to be aligned to the EU in order to guarantee our standards to do that. But actually, I think Brexit was, you know, it wasn't a, the same way that Dan Hannan envisaged it. It was far more actually how John Mann envisaged it. Well, I, I, I agree that it's not sort of the unilateral free trade becoming Singapore kind of image, mm. but I also would, wouldn't, I would say it'd be wrong to categorise it as an anti-free trade vote because, I mean, the Leave campaign explicitly mentioned in their campaign, one of the leading things was, we leave the EU, we can trade around the world. That was one of their one of the big things, and trade with the emerging economies, not necessarily even just America, but places in the Far East, places like like the um, places in Africa that that we could trade more with those, where rather than sort of the EU, which is a declining proportion of of the world's GDP. Um, in terms of the um, whether we'd want a trade deal with America. Obviously, it would be a negotiation. We don't know necessarily exactly what's coming in. in t- and, but in terms of um, like things like chlorinated chicken, I don't think that it's as much of a big deal as people are making out because it would be people's choice to buy, you know, what, whatever they, you know, it's consumer choice. If, if they want to buy, I don't think chlorinated chicken would be that popular, realistically, yeah. because I think British people like sort of high standards in their food mm. and they would they would continue to buy that and in fact it, it may in fact be a boon to the uk farmers because they could sell their product their sort of high quality agricultural products more easily to america and american consumers might very well like our high quality products and i'm sure they would so there's, there's always two sides to this and it, it would be difficult to negotiate a trade deal with america but i think that negotiating it as Britain rather than as the EU would be preferable because it could suit our economy rather than trying to suit 28 different economies that, you know, all got their conflicting interests. You know, that, I think that just complicates things. You see how long that it took them to negotiate a deal with Canada. It took them not, not nearly nine years to, to negotiate that. And I think that that, that comes with just the EU bureaucracy and just the... The, the conflicting interest within it. But look, the, the, issue, the issue is doing negotiate it with the EU, uh, as I would want to, in a, a far more social and effective way than, than TTIP was. That's option A. Option B, do we um, leave the EU on negotiated terms and have a backstop and not be able to negotiate that? Possibly we wouldn't be able to in services, but it would be such a small trade deal that that wouldn't be, um, you know, it wouldn't involve agriculture or anything like that. 
or C, do we go for no deal, be able to do that in theory, but in practice not be able to get it through Congress? And that, that for me, is those are the trade-offs. And look, trade-offs are inherent to free trade agreements. And I just don't think people are, are living up to them. I mean, it was interesting, um, the point you made, uh, Conrad, about uh, free trade and um, the congregated chicken. I just wonder, though, because you say that obviously it wouldn't necessarily be as um, poss- um, as popular with the British people. Do you not think that there is perhaps the worry that we could be selling a product that might be um, cheaper than... Um, uh, traditionally British reared chicken and that we could therefore say for example that there is a low-income family that wants to you know have a healthy diet for their children and the rest of their family but due to prices is forced to buy a substandard product is that not something that worries you at all well I mean if if uh, if they already can't afford British chicken it's if anything it's opening up the possibility of having chicken for them and i don't think i mean chlorinated chicken i think is a very bad example for the it's the one that's become the big one but the fact is that there is there is no evidence that there's any health like harm that comes from eating chicken in america the you know the salmonella rates in america are actually lower than they are in in, in european chicken so i i I think it's a weird one to have become the the mm. big one. I mean, and there's many examples in American food that I think would probably be better <laughs> in terms of lower standards. But um, no, I think that um, yeah, people might choose. I think like if if you can afford it at current prices, then you you would you can make the choice of whether you want to have 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 American or not. And if you can't, then it's, it's, it's just adding the choice of American rather than not, not at all. I mean, hope, I'd like people to be able to, to not be that poor and hopefully, you know, tax cuts and things will come in. <laughs> well, <laughs> what, through this parliament? Well, maybe at some, maybe after after the big general election when Boris Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've been a bit optimistic there. <laughs> Are you picturing that uh, Jeb Bush meme with Boris and, and a map yeah, in the UK so, sweeping in blue? <laughs> <so>. <laughs> I was just wondering, um, just to go back to um, Trump and his state visit, what do you think, Nathan, about the way that uh, Jeremy Corbyn has dealt with it? Do you think that his boycotting of the state banquet was appropriate and the speech that he made at the people's protest? Or do you think that perhaps he shouldn't have taken such a hard line? No, I think Jeremy's got the spot on. Uh, I think it's, it's certainly the right position. Um, Trump is, in my view, anathema to, and what he stands for is anathema to the values of um, of Britain, uh, but also of Labour members, Labour voters. So Jeremy's rightly taking taking a lead on this, um, and I think it's 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 a fantastic thing um, that, that he's got the opportunity to speak today at the demo and for Labour to have a presence there uh, and be, in my view, on the right side of history. We're coming to the end of the podcast now, but um, we've been talking a lot about Europe. Um, did you watch the Champions League final? I did. And and I assume, as an Arsenal fan, you were quite happy about it? Oh, I was delighted. Less so with uh, with Wednesday night, but oh, yeah. um, it, it was fantastic Saturday night to see, uh, to see Spurs lose. <laughs> and I'm sure in, in that, you, you and Jeremy Corbyn are united. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Oh, except yeah. So, not David Lowey, though. 
Mm, no. Anyway, thank you for jo- thank you for joining us today. It's been a great discussion. And no worries, it's been you, a pleasure. We'd love to have you on again at some point if you, if you if you'd be willing. Of course. Um, so yeah, so thanks everyone for listening. Um, you can check out our Twitter debated podcast, or if you want to email in the debated podcast at gmail dot com, and we're also on Facebook. And you can listen to iTunes, Podbean, and all those things. I'm sure you know if you're listening to this. Um, <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs> uh, so, so, yeah, so thank you everyone for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>